Welcome to the Cynicism Podcast, where we will talk to experts from around the world to help us all better understand China. I am Bill Bishop, and I write Cynicism, a newsletter that helps you get smarter about China. Hi, everyone. Today's guest is Chen Long, co-founder and partner of Plenum, a research firm covering Chinese economy and politics. Prior to that, he was a China economist at Gavkal Dragonomics. Chen Long is a Beijinger and graduated from Peking University. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you. Thank you, Bill. It's uh, my honor to be your third guest. Oh well, third third time is the charm. I hope, <laughs> um, and I hope things are well in. I hope things are well in Beijing. I have to say, yeah. I very much miss this time of year in Beijing. Um, there is something really special about autumn in Beijing. So to kick off, you know, today I think we want to talk about the state of the economy and various themes related to that, including common prosperity and uh, real estate, the sixth plenum that's coming up. But to start out, could you uh, just give a, a brief intro about yourself and, and more specifically what Pledum does, um, just for listeners? It's a high-end research service. The website is at plenum.ai, and it's really terrific. It's one of my top, most favorite research services on China now. They're they're, they're really sharp on economy and politics. Yeah, thank you, Bill. I think Bill, you have done uh, basically all the marketing uh, I need to do. <laughs> we are a pretty uh, a young firm. I mean, we were founded uh, two years ago, almost exactly two years ago, and uh, that's when when uh, when we first started to publish reports. And we write on like Chinese economy, policies, politics, uh, geopolitics. Other stuff, and uh, you know, we serve institutional clients. Some of our financial institutions, some are like non-financial corporations. And I think what we are a little bit uh, different from others is the team is basically entirely uh, Chinese nationals. But of course, we'll come from like different backgrounds. A lot of people work in the U.S. for many years. And right now, I'm based in Beijing. And I first came across your work, I think, because you were working uh, with Arthur Krober, right, over at Gavcall Dragonomics? Yes, I was at Gavcall for uh, almost six years. Right. And I think that's that's where I first started reading your work. So anyway, it's great to have you. I've always, I've always been a big fan. Thank you, Bill. Yeah. So from, from a top level, could, could you just give us your view on what's going on in the economy in, in China and where things are? Yeah, I think the economy is a little bit like ice and fire. You know, for now, uh, there are certain areas certainly doing uh, pretty poorly. Of course, everyone is talking about the property market, Evergrande, and uh, I mean, basically every couple of weeks we see a property de- uh, uh, developer default. But on the other hand, you know, you also see this uh, you know, energy crunch, which actually uh, was because you know energy demand was really strong, right? And industrial demand was strong, and then the the, the grid and then the power plants could not meet up with that demand. So you basically have one uh, big sector of the economy and actually several big sectors apart from the real estate. You have uh, the automobile market actually shrinking this year. General consumption were pretty mediocre, right? Because, you know, uh, whenever there's a COVID cluster, uh, you have local governments will restrict travel or implement some sort of lockdown uh, for like two or four weeks. So consumption will be affected. But on the other hand, the like, export is really strong. Right, I, we're probably seeing the best export performance since 2011. Uh, that's the best we have in, in a decade, uh, and there's no sign that it, this is, uh, you know, cooling off. Uh, a lot of people have said, no, this is just temporary, not going to be sustainable. I've been hearing that argument since a year ago. Right, and right now it's still like really hot. So that's why you have like certain sectors. You know, so that's a little bit special. I didn't compare with any time in the last uh, decade. And certainly, like, specifically around the energy challenges, you said it was, you know, really because demand was so high. 
how quickly do you think that the, you know, there have been a whole flurry of measures from the NDRC and other government bodies about, you know, making sure that the coal supply increases and cracking down on price speculation. And I mean, how quickly do you think that these regulatory actions are going to solve the problem and do the price, the reforming or the changing in the price mechanism, is that enough to make the power generators actually make money now so they're more willing to burn to, to more willing to produce energy or or are we still going to be looking at probably fits and starts over the next few months yeah i think the, a lot of the power plants may not be losing money uh, at this point you know the government basically did several things at the same time but one they told all the coal miners just to increase supply as much as you can and two you know they told the coal miners also to uh, restrict the prices basically they set a cap and there's a debate on like what is really exactly is the cap because there are several different versions of the cap whatever version you believe in there's a cap and the cap is a lot lower than the market price we had like two weeks ago that's why we had this Zhengzhou thermal coal future price basically half in two weeks and uh, they also allow the power plants to raise the electricity prices uh, by up to 20 percent uh, and more for these, uh, you know, uh, if the users are like high energy intensity, uh, you know, uh, sectors. Uh, so like there, there are a flurry of changes uh, happened just over the last month or so. And I think the coal supply has probably improved quite a bit. And uh, we are hearing a lot less stories, uh, companies running, you know, they face uh, blackouts or they were just told in very short notice that they have to cut production. We hear a lot less less story, but that still exists. It's just a lot less than, uh, you know, a month ago or at the end of uh, September. But with this winter, like, heating season coming again, usually December is the peak of Chinese uh, electricity consumption. I'm not sure the current supply of coal is enough. I mean, it's better uh, than a month ago, but they probably have to do a little bit more. So it's, it's I think it's still too early to say that we have totally overcome the energy shortage. I mean, it is interesting how it really seemed to have caught a lot of people by surprise. Um, I think both both policymakers, but also investors. Yeah, it's just interesting how that how that happened and how it, it, so many people seem to not understand what was going on, including myself. Yeah, because you know, for like twenty years, maybe you know, people talk about you know China, uh, you know, has overcapacity in IPP. You know, this is actually see uh, the power plants. China invested too much in some old, uh, power plants. And I think at, at, the point, at one point, like 2015 or 2016, when the overcapacity got really serious, and then that was one of the sectors that Liu He and others had to work very hard to cut capacity. Uh, so we, like, we never really thought for a second that China would have electricity shortage because there's always huge supply, maybe oversupply. Right. A lot of things changed since the beginning of the pandemic. The uh, services sector uh, used to be growing a lot faster, but so far, you know, it's underperforming, while the industrial sector, which were, you know, slowing for many years and suddenly uh, started to outperform. So basically, since the second quarter of last year, you know, we have a Chinese economy that moving further away from a service-driven economy to a more industrial-driven economy. So that's a completely reversal of the trend since 2010 or even 2005. That's also a reversal of what a lot of uh, economists have recommended China do, right? Yeah, I mean, the people say, you know, yeah, China should become more service-driven and less industrial-driven, also, of course, more consumption-driven, less investment-driven. But I would say this whole, like, rebalancing theme uh, has somewhat reversed over the last year or so. And this is just, again, that has to do with this, like, fire and ice that I mentioned earlier. So this is one sector doing really well. It's industrials, and the manufacturing facilities are just operating at full capacity. 
demand from the rest of the world is really strong, and while you know domestic consumption uh, is very mediocre. So, and service sector, of course, the people just go out a little bit less than they were like in uh, 2019 or earlier. So, you know, this is a sector. Basically, the economy itself is consuming much more electricity than it used to be. That means two years ago. So, you know, suddenly we have this issue. Interesting. And and just on that sort of you know, stronger industrial, weaker consumption service sector. Is that by design? Is that something that the policymakers want? Or is this just more of an outgrowth of, you know, the pandemic, uh, changing global dynamics, potentially consumer spending dropping because of concerns about consumer debt, for, for example? Mm. I mean, what, what's driving that? I don't think it's intended or planned or, or even uh, foreseen by Beijing, by the leadership. I think you know, when China started to get out of the pandemic, like in uh, April or May 2020, I mean, there was a real fear because the rest of the world is, is you know, experiencing the worst of the pandemic. So the worry at the time was you know, China is going to face a demand collapse from the rest of the world. So you get a, like a double whammy mm-hmm. uh, economic crisis. So just get out from the domestic demand collapse, you're going to see an external demand collapse. But you know, somehow that external demand collapse didn't really happen or just like basically happened for uh, one month or so. It turned out to be that the export uh, was really strong. And people in Beijing could hardly believe that. And people said, oh, this was just, uh, you know, temporary because, you know, the supply chain was disrupted. But, you know, maybe when things get better next year, the demand will go away. And some of the demand has to do with this seamless, you know, checks uh, given by U.S. government, European governments. Once that effect you know, expires, and the demand will go away, but so far it still hasn't gone away. And with like Southeast Asia and uh, Eastern Europe, uh, Latin America, a lot of the developing like manufacturer hubs uh, in trouble. Like China basically became the only like manufacturer hub that can still maintain enough supply. So I think that that really caught a lot of people, including the Chinese government, by by big surprise. No, it is really interesting. So sort of as you talk about the, the economy, I think you call it fire and ice. I mean, one area that seems a bit icy is real estate. And obviously Evergrande's mm-hmm. been the news, but there are other plenty of other real estate developers that are, you know, have, have violated the three red lines or seem to be in, you know, various states of, of default or near default on some of their um, on some of their debt. You know, one thing that's been interesting, right, is is, you know, we've we've sort of seen real estate stresses that are over the last 15 years or so, every few years, it seems like there's a cycle and it's usually policy driven because because the policymakers want to want to crack down on real estate speculation and, mm. you know, unproductive investment. But then when things start getting bad and stressed and companies start having problems and prices sort of maybe start looking like they're going to drop in some places, the policymakers always blink and pull back and and basically find ways to, you know, loosen things up and, and let the market return. It seems like this time they've been much more disciplined uh, I think surprising a lot of people in terms of being willing to ride out uh, a lot more pain around the real estate s- sector. Is that is that a fair assessment? And if it is, uh, why is that? And if it's not, how do you see what's going on? Yeah, I tend to believe that this time is not that much different from previous episodes. I mean, I know there's argument there say like, you know, she really wants to reduce the share of the real estate in the economy and wants to like curb housing prices. But you know, I, I don't think this is new. Right? We had these episodes like you just mentioned, like multiple times right. in the last 15 years. Basically every three years we have a, a property cycle like from trough to peak to trough, right? And and the Chinese government, both central and local, that like, would change policies 
you know, very, very quickly. And this time is no different, right? Because you, know, you talk about the three red lines, the three red lines really were just introduced a year ago, right? Last August, right? And one, the background of that was the PBOC, along with other policymakers, saw the property market recovered too quickly. And things are doing too well. And housing prices in cities, especially big cities like Shenzhen or Shanghai, were rising too fast. And that was a little bit uh, unanticipated. So they said, no, we have to restrict their, uh, you know, this kind of uh, bull run. And you know, a year after Beijing and many local governments introduced restrictive policies, finally, you know, we had three months in a row of property, uh, like uh, sales volume falling by double digit on a year-on-year basis. Mm-hmm. But this is just three months, right? If you look at the previous cycles, especially like 2015, 16, we could have the down cycle for 15 months. Right. But this is just three, right? So Beijing has not blinked yet, yeah, because it's only three months, right? And we are seeing a little bit some early signs, like PBOC said two weeks ago, said, oh, some uh, banks misunderstood our intention <laughs> when we told them to restrict the uh, uh, lending and some of the you know, normal projects should not be restricted, blah, blah, blah. And then I think today or, or yesterday, uh, one of the uh, uh, state-owned media, like uh, Economic Lady, again published an article about these housing regulations. So I think they were, we're seeing some signs that you know, things are, are easing a little bit. So it's not like you know, they are just uh, letting the market die. Right. Well, I mean, there are real risks. I mean, there there are real risks around. I mean, you know, I I own property in China for a while, and and certainly had lots of friends who who include some real estate developers and people with lots. Of, I mean, th- there was there was just the sense that, you know, when you in these previous cycles, they would go until prices started dropping, and there was a risk of people getting really pissed off because they were losing money again, and so. You know, I mean, they, again, it doesn't seem like the prices have dropped that much yet in most places. Is that one of the things to look for where if we start seeing housing prices actually go negative, is that one of the triggers that makes the government maybe start lucid faster just because they're worried about, you know, how I mean, they, they have they have their constituency, you know, and, and people who own property. They do care what they think. Right. Yeah, that's, that's certainly one thing they care about. And I think another thing they care about, like is the impact on, on the economy, like the GDP, right, the housing and the real estate sector as a whole, like if you count all the upstream industries all together, come from probably one third of China's economy, right? So if you kill the real estate sector, basically you kill the economy. Uh, and they can't right. do that, right? That's suicide. No. It's still like a quarter of the economy, right? So somewhere around there, if you add up all the various... Yeah, depending on how you estimate, like for anywhere between 20% to a third, uh, that's kind of the uh, estimation, yeah. So Evergrande, right? There was a massive freak out over Evergrande in, you know, I, I think it's maybe even a month ago or a little longer. Did people overreact to what's going on at Evergrande? Um, and, and what is what is going on there and how do you think it gets resolved? Yeah, I think there's a little bit of sense that people uh, were a little bit overreacting. That's when uh, I got caught by uh, Al Jazeera twice in two days, saying, you know, we need to come to Evergrande. I was like, Come on, guys. You know, you guys, yeah, very respectable, like media TV, but you don't need to tell your audience, like in Qatar, like what's going on in Evergrande in two days right. in a row. And one of that is a Sunday. So I, I was like, oh, this is really everywhere, right? It's not just the Bloomberg or, or Wall Street Journal, right? This is, uh, has gone to non financial media as well. And that was basically the main theme in the last uh, week of, uh, last two weeks of September, right? So I think there was a little bit of overreaction, especially when you, See headlines linking Evergrande to, you know, Lehman Brothers and uh, right. 
this sort of thing. And, and I have to say that this, this is at least the third time I hear a Chinese Lima moment in the last decade. I was just going to say it is it is like the default the default analogy when you know oh my god the China's Lehman moment and we saw it I remember it was I think 2013 when they when the interbank market basically went crazy yeah. like the end of Q2 early Q3 yes I forget the other one but no it it is every time I see someone say China's Lehman market I basically just to be honest I just tune it out because it 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 just doesn't yeah. it, it doesn't fit and it it never has and if China has a big problem like Lehman Brothers, it won't be like Lehman Brothers. It'll be something else, is my view. Yes, totally. I, mean, I, I would argue that even if Lehman Brothers exists today, I mean, if that the same thing happens today with the current Federal Reserve, with the current Fed chairman, this would not have happened. <laughs> because right. they would just do QE. <laughs> so so what does happen with Evergrande? I mean, how does it, how does this thing get resolved? Um, I, Evergrande, you know, on, on the surface, just a, a very large company, over leveraged, and uh, you know, had a liquidity problem, maybe has solvency problem. We don't really know how much of its assets is real and how much the liability is real. Maybe its liability is a lot more than it's stated. But it says right. it has two trillion RMB uh, liability. Right. But if it has two point five trillion, then the the company is insolvent, right? So we don't really know. Uh, and the thing is, you know, we just see start to see that this company started to have funding problem since PBOC introduced the three red lines because it failed in all the three. Uh, banks were afraid of giving it money uh, and couldn't refinance in the bond market either. And the trust company and the trust products everyone sold started to have problems. So, you know, basically with leverage at that size, you know, you have to keep borrowing to evergreen the existing yeah. debt. The ones that the snowball you know, stops moving, then basically you collapse, right? So I guess that's basically what 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 it faced. And how are we going to resolve it? I think, you know, in, in the best case scenario that, you know, uh, a lot of the real estate projects to just, you know, first they have to get it finished and, uh, you know, some of the land or some other projects be sold to other uh, developers and Evergrande will downsize to a much smaller developer and then will start to exist. And that's quite similar to what Wanda did. Right? Wanda was much bigger property developer uh, five years ago. But since then it started to shrink, it sold a lot of the projects both in China and overseas. Right. And uh, basically right now it's, it's, it's a, like a property management company and doesn't have a lot of hard assets. So that's that's what Wang Jianlin did to like, you know, to, to save himself basically and, and his company. So maybe on everyone, if you're rational, you think that's a good scenario. But I think Hui Kain uh, doesn't want to give up. I think he is betting on another big easing from, uh, from Beijing, right? Because he has been in this, uh, I would say, you know, in the live or die moment, uh, at least twice in the last uh, 15 years, right? The first time, the first time I heard about Evergrande was 2007, right? I, I saw news that uh, Hui Kain was having drinks with the Hong Kong tycoons and playing mahjong together, and finally, you know, he uh, uh, received a lot of money from, from from the Hong Kong tycoons, and then that saved him in 2008. But the company was on the edge of collapse, and uh, the second time was 2015. The company was again on the edge of collapse. Uh, and then, you know, it bet on a big easing from Beijing and then property market turned around, it you know, became much bigger. And I think this time, Hui Kain doesn't want to give up. But he did say uh, two weeks ago that he wants to move further away from, you know, property developing, wants to become an electricity car company. Uh, you know, God knows whether he can succeed or not, but he's not going to just give up. Right, right. No, he he's the kind of, I mean, that's why he's been so successful and why he's been able to pull this off. <laughs> he, he, right? Yeah. right? I mean, he's just going to go until he can't go anymore. 
Yeah, I think from the government's perspective, the government would, would just want everyone like downsize, you know, finish the existing projects, pay off your debt, you become a smaller company, uh, and then your risk also is a lot smaller. But I'm not sure that's something that Hui Kaiyin has decided to do, you know, because then he will become a much less relevant person. Right. And, you know, the government does also seem concerned now about the 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 risks of defaults in the overseas debt markets, right? I mean, it seems like they're, you know, they, they, this is the, 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 the constant tension, right? If they want to, they want to introduce some discipline and they want to avoid moral hazard, but they can't have a bunch of sort of offshore bonds default in a short period of time, right? Because then that potentially really screws up the market for them for a while, doesn't it? Yeah, that's actually an interesting point because, you know, in, you know, when people ask me uh, about Evergrande like a uh, month and a half ago, I was basically saying, I think the dollar bond market matters the least for Beijing, right? Because uh, you, know, you have a, a different kinds of creditors of Evergrande, right? You have the uh, home buyers who have paid but haven't received the, the, the houses. And then you have the, the construction firms and their workers. Mm-hmm. And then you have the domestic banks, the domestic WMP holders, domestic trust companies. And they all matter a great deal for the Chinese right. financial system. Uh, maybe and the last one is a uh, hedge fund in the offshore debt. You no, know, you know, someone bought a bond in in, in Hong Kong, but the, but you're right. Like all of a sudden, uh, you know, they had a meeting a, a week ago saying, right. oh, hey, guys, you know, we have to have a little bit discipline, right? Don't just run away. Uh, you have to also take care of your offshore debt." I still haven't figured out why, you know, what changed in their thinking. Maybe this is just a, a way to calm down the Wall Street. But why did they suddenly feel they have to calm down the Wall Street? Like six weeks after uh, uh, the crisis uh, happened, I haven't figured out. My hypothesis is maybe you know some Wall Street bosses put some pressure on on Chinese leadership. And I, I didn't you know notice that uh, a lot of the uh, you know, big bankers and the big you know, American company and the senior executives had a, a video conference with Wang Qishan two or three weeks ago, you know, called in the name of the Qinghua advisory board. Right, 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 right. Uh, that's, you know, that's interesting. And I have to say, I find it very, very strange that the U.S. Secretary of State Blinken brought up Evergrande a couple weeks ago, right? Which he, he made some comment about hoping the Chinese manage Ever- I, I forget exactly his exact words, but it's just... So he was asked. He was asked by CNN or some other media. He oh, was, was it asked. a response? Yeah. He was asked? Okay. Yeah. It just seemed like yeah. it was very uh, sort of out of his lane in terms of what the Secretary yeah. of State would talk about. Yeah. Uh, he basically said, you know, people have to act uh, responsibly. It is interesting, though. It definitely does seem to be a shift. Yeah. So speaking of shifts, um, I know we only have a few more minutes, but I'd love to get your thoughts on, you know, again, this is something lots of people outside of China, I know, sort of scratching their heads, but but certainly uh, folks I've talked to inside China, too, are trying to really get their hands around what does common prosperity mean? And what changes, what policy direction are we really going to see around common prosperity? And, you know, there was that strange WeChat post that was from a very mm-hmm. sort of... Li Guangman. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, the, the very neo, sort of neo-Maoist blogger that was picked up over the weekend by a bunch of online, you know, the, the online properties of, of, you know, Xinhua, big state media mm-hmm. properties, which, which caused mm-hmm. a lot of consternation, you know, outside China, but I think inside China as well. And so it seems like the messaging is a little bit mixed and, you know, there's obviously a lot of politics involved. But what do you see or what have, what's your guys' view, the, the plenum view on what common prosperity means going forward? Well, we tend to think that common prosperity is like a, a next step 
after President Xi completed the poverty alleviation campaign, right? So after poverty alleviation, in theory, China should be uh, have, should have no you know absolutely poor people, right? Uh, nobody is living in poverty anymore. Uh, and then what's the next step, right? Uh, that's not the end, right? You get out of poverty, but you should get richer and right, you have a better life. So I think that's what uh, you know, something that he came up with after that. You know, we, we want everyone to have a, a more decent lifestyle. And of course, he chose Zhejiang province, mm-hmm. you know, province he spent five years uh, as party secretary to be the uh, pilot program, a pilot area for, for commerce prosperity. And, and the thing about Zhejiang, was uh, the thing Zhejiang published was uh, rather, I would say, uh, a standard, right? It basically said, you no, know, we want to increase the household income by what percentage point, we want to increase uh, like the uh, GDP by a certain percentage point, and then the uh, equality among different cities uh, should be restricted within a ratio, and uh, you know, people should be able to find the jobs very easily, blah, blah. It's, it's a lot like that. So it's, it's still very a pro-growth, the Zhejiang uh, plan. But we all know like the common prosperity is not only about growth, it's also about redistribution, right? w- which is something Zhejiang did not mention very much in its own report, which is understandable because you know, that requires pol- tax policy changes that Zhejiang has no, uh, has no say. So you know, some people, Beijing has to decide you know, what kind of tax you know, what you have to introduce, right? People talk about this you know, property uh, tax and the more pilot programs for, for property taxes. And then we talk about the consumption taxes. So this kind of stuff, the Zhejiang has no say, right? So Beijing has to decide what exactly they're gonna do with, with all these taxes. So there's certainly an element also you know, about redistribution, restricting the super rich, and especially those who got rich uh, without behaving, how to say, you know, legally, or like you, know, you operate in gray area. Mm-hmm. For many years, there was no law or no regulation. You got rich, but maybe you broke the law, right? So if you got rich through that channel, then maybe you, know, you have to rethink a little bit. Yeah? Or at least you have to change your, your model completely because that's no longer tolerated, right? Because the, 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 the president did say, we encourage everyone you know, to work very hard uh, to get rich, and that's great, uh, but you know, we also want to restrict people from you know, getting rich using uh, the dodgy channels. Right, and and I think that's what has has um, certainly freaked out a, a fair number of people, right? Because because the yeah, it's always it's always unclear what what the definition of dodgy or not legal <laughs> actually actually is, and you know how far back they might go, right. and you know, and that I think also ties a, a bit into. You know, I know you guys have written a fair amount about all these these various regulatory actions, and you know, specifically around sort of anti-monopolies um, policies and regulatory decisions, and also the sort of the 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 changing approach to internet platform regulation. Are we in a new normal when it comes to regulation? Is is you know, I I, I talk to some people who think you know that this is all past and it's going to get better again, but to my perspective, it, it it really feels like this is just a new we're in a new era of this kind of stuff. And so like the big internet companies, their businesses are still good, but they're never going to be the same. Yes. And it's, it just, it feels like their costs, they're, they're going to be, they're going to have a lot higher cost base because they're not going to be able to exploit workers and customers like the way they used to be able to. Yeah. I think the compliance costs will, will certainly be a lot higher uh, than before. And uh, these regulations have passed and they will stay here. They will not go away. They will not be rolled back. 
So you know, I, I don't think you know there's anything like the end of the regulation or, or the end of the regulation campaign. There, there will be no end. But I, I do think maybe the peak is behind us. Uh, you know, think about the largest internet companies in China, Alibaba and Meituan were already you know punished for uh, right. like uh, antitrust, uh, and the, the Tencent was not. Uh, directly affected by the trust, but you know, the gaming thing was also mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, and other like uh, a lot of other guys like also like name checked by dance or like Pinduoduo. They were also a little bit worried. So, you know, it's, it's hard to say like who will be bigger like than Alibaba, who will be a bigger victim than Alibaba. Or, uh, it's very hard to unless like Tencent be, uh, suddenly runs into a big trouble, but uh, nobody else is, is bigger than Alibaba in China in the Chinese internet uh, domain. Right. So I guess you know after these campaigns, uh, maybe you know things will settle down a little bit. You know it will not be over, uh, but you know we we're likely to suddenly see another company find you know, 18 billion RMB uh, immediately, or, or like another large fintech company say you, know, you have to dissolve or you have to be separated into different arms. Right. But nobody else is really as big as as armed, right? So I guess maybe we have passed the peak, and especially you know this year again, I think there's there's something different uh, about this year is. Since the very beginning, right, uh, she made it very clear that this is a year that we don't have to worry very much about economic growth right, because it's very easy, right? They set the growth target at six percent intentionally, which is a target they're going to reach anyway, mm-hmm. right? So basically, you, you, they can do a lot of other things like structural reforms and some things they 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 wanted to do in the past but didn't have the time or the capacity. But finally, you know, this year you can spend all your efforts in, in these things. But next year will be different again. But next year, actually, we'll, we'll go back to the normal, the normal China that you have to be worried about growth target, right? Where is Beijing going to set the growth target? But people are debating. I think it's still being something like five and a half percent, and I definitely don't think it'll be lower than five percent. So, and given the current trajectory, right, they have to change policy uh, quite a bit to reach either targets, right? especially five and a half. So you're saying, like, if they if they decide the target. For next year is five percent. That have to ease up on some things for next year. Yeah, I think five they have to ease a little bit, and if five and a half they have to ease uh, quite a lot, and that means you have to be a little bit nicer to to companies in general, right? So it's like you know, last year in twenty twenty, she had several symposiums with various people, right, and at least two with large companies, right. Uh, one there was a foreign company, the other was all like Chinese private firms, but this year. At least on the record, I haven't seen any of these kind of symposiums with uh, companies, right? He, so he only does that when he's worried about the corporate sector. And this year, he's not worried, apparently. Right? But next year, if he's worried again, he could come up and, and uh, you know, have a conversation with these guys in person. Right. And uh, you know, if he does that, then you know, the, the crackdowns will be you know, a lot softer. Interesting. So last question, I know you got to go, is what do you think we're going to see out of the six plenum that investors and others should really be paying attention to that starts, I guess it starts on Monday and runs through, I think, Thursday next week, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, the six plenum is all about one thing, right? It's this resolution about uh, uh, like the accomplishments of the party uh, in the last 100 years. Right. And I think the, the previous two resolutions, we had one in 1945, another in uh, 1981, right? Maybe the 1981 one is more relevant because, of course, that's more recent and uh, mm-hmm. that was done by, by Deng Xiaoping. And without the second, you wouldn't have known, like you know, we wouldn't have known there would be like another resolution, right? So 
But I think this time is quite different because both in the, the first resolution, uh, basically written by, written and approved by Chairman Mao, and the second one uh, basically drafted and finally approved by, by, by Deng and before Chen Yun and other old comrades, right? they had to fight with a different uh, ideology. Right. So in the first resolution, Chairman Mao was basically saying, you no, know, the, the party did made a lot of mistakes in the 1930s, right? That ended up then with the long march. And then we had the corrected hosting in Zunyi conference. And then I had to be this core. And then, then the party was safe, right? So there, there was a real fight between Mao and a lot of other guys, right? Wang Ming and others. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that he used that resolution to cement uh, you know, what happened in the party over the last uh, you know, 20 years or so. So which was right and which was wrong. So, so that was basically that resolution was all about. And the 1981 resolution was similar, right? So, so they had they, these old comrades had to, they felt they had to come up with something to summarize what happened since 1949, right? What was right, what was wrong? Where did Chairman Mao did right? Where did he did wrong? And what we should do next, right? So there was a lot of that. And also, of course, Hua Gofeng at the time was still relevant, right? So uh, mm-hmm. he had to make sure that these, uh, uh, no, Liang Fanshi, right? This uh, whatever Mao said, what we had to follow, right? This is crap. Yeah, the two, the two whatevers, yeah. Yes, yeah. So he had to crack that. So there was, there, in both occasions, there were clear things he, they had to correct. But this time, I, I really don't think there's a clear thing that uh, you know, President Xi has to correct because no one is really arguing something else. And, uh, you know, I think you should talk about the, the mistakes or, or some like problems the party had since 1981. You know, maybe the biggest thing was what happened in the late 80s, right? But since 1992, when Deng did this uh, sudden speech and everything was basically all about the reform and open up, blah, blah. Of course, we had a little bit of like, you know, chaos during the 18th Party Congress with the Bushilayo and all these guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was, I think, was, was so minor if you compare it to all the other accidents the party had over the last 100 years, right? Maybe it's only relevant in the last 40 years. So I think it's all, and also the name was a little bit different, right? The, the previous ones were all about uh, resolutions on certain questions of the party's history, right? And this one is not uh, on certain questions. There is no question. It's a resolution on the party's accomplishments over the last 100 years uh, and the lessons. So I guess it's a big, big summary about you know, what he has done. And of course, this one, I think, was what, to demand him as the core, right? And uh, we have to follow you know, whatever you know, he thinks we should do. So and that's something definitely right. That's an interesting point about how about if it's not actually about certain questions. Mm. It probably if people want to get ahead of this, I, I think reading that document, I think it came out in August. It was basically a long piece about the party's accomplishments. Uh, I'm guessing that there'll be a lot in this resolution that is very similar to that language. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, it seems like it's sort of a a, a draft almost, and and it really, like you said, it's it's not about sort of settling a, a fight that's been going on so much as is mm-hmm. more forward working but but so what does that mean i mean i assume this will tie into common prosperity and i guess but this this plenum right i mean you you it really is going to be about this there's probably nothing from a policy perspective that's going to sort of affect how affect the economy or how investors should look at china in the near term right yeah i guess not that much in, in the near term and well, of course I mean, this one will set the stage for for next year right where the big thing will right. happen so the Chinese Party Congress, and you know, they're going to say, we're going to follow this resolution and then do whatever we should do you know, in the next few years. Right. Great. Well, hey, I really appreciate your time. I want to thank you for being one of, one of the first guests of Cynicism. And 
I will put a link to uh, the Plenum website in the show notes. And um, I highly recommend anyone who is financial market professional interested in China, you should you should go sign up for trial. Like I said, uh, Chen Long and his team and the, the Plenum research product is really quite terrific. So thanks again for your time. And I hope everything stays safe in Beijing. You know, we, we, we see lots of headlines about COVID in Beijing right now, but... Um, I yeah, it is absolutely safe. It, it's, uh, if you, yeah. if I go out, I mean, I'll be able to come back. So it's absolutely safe to just stay here. <laughs> so, right, so, so you're probably not leaving Beijing until February, right? I mean, is, is it possible that you really can't leave before the Olympics? I think I can. I think after next week, things may be a little bit relaxed. I, I think this is partly because of next week, the, the six plan. The plan. And partly because you know, the, the, the COVID clusters are still in, on the rise. But I, I think after next week, I, I might be able to travel a little bit. Yeah. Great. Well, anyway, thanks again yeah. for your time. And um, yeah. I hope to talk to you soon. Yeah, thank you, Bill. Yeah. You have been listening to the Cynicism Podcast by Bill Bishop, author of the Cynicism Newsletter. You can read more about this in other episodes, as well as sign up for the newsletter at cynicism.com. That is S-I-N-O-C-I-S-M dot com. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving it a positive review at Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That really does help. Thanks to Seven Morris for his editing help and to you for listening. <laughs>